Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Week in Review, a production of 90.3 WRST-FM Oshkosh. I'm Joe Schultz. This week, we'll talk to an economist about how to reopen Wisconsin. We'll take a look at the Oshkosh Area School District's efforts to educate amid the pandemic. And we'll take a look back at the Algoma Boulevard riots of 1970. Those stories and more coming up on Week in Review. According to Johns Hopkins University, as of Thursday, the United States has had over 1 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 and roughly 60,000 deaths as a result of the virus. On Thursday, Wisconsin saw an increase of 334 COVID-19 cases, raising the state's total to 6,854 cases, with 316 deaths. Winnebago County saw its largest one-day increase of COVID-19 cases on Thursday, with positive test results jumping by 8 to increase the total to 56 confirmed cases. The county still has one reported death as a result of the virus. On Monday, Governor Tony Evers issued an executive order to expand operations for non-essential businesses. The order allows every business to do deliveries, curbside pickup, and drop-off, or to make mailings. In a press release, Evers said the state is working to reopen safely and responsibly. He says the new order, combined with the extension of Safer at Home, turns the dial, allowing non-essential businesses to do more than they could before. Essential and non-essential businesses must also follow social distancing and safety practices. Businesses that do not follow the guidelines outlined by Governor Evers can face repercussions. Before the governor issued his new executive order, expanding operations for businesses, one Oshkosh business owner was arrested on Monday for violating the Safer at Home order. Last week, Oshkosh police received a call from the county health department that said the dog depot on South Main Street was open, violating the Safer at Home order. Police say they told the owner that the health department had determined that the business was non-essential and needed to close. Police say the owner was warned several times and that the owner had told police she would not comply with the order and close her business. After consulting the Winnebago County District Attorney's Office, police charged the owner for violating Safer at Home and told her each day the business stayed open would result in another charge. On Monday, police arrested the owner because she still refused to comply with Safer at Home. This was the first arrest the Oshkosh Police Department has had to make for violating Safer at Home. On Monday morning, the Winnebago County Health Department also suspended the grooming license of Dog Depot. But, after Governor Evers' new restrictions for non-essential businesses were released, the Health Department reinstated the Dog Depot's grooming salon license. On Thursday, the American Civil Liberties Union of Wisconsin called on Governor Tony Evers to extend a statewide moratorium on evictions. Along with 19 other state affiliates, the ACLU sent letters to local elected officials across the country urging them to issue or expand statewide moratoria against evictions and commit to preventing mass evictions after the moratoria end. We're going to take a quick break here on Week in Review from 90.3 WRST-FM Oshkosh. You took the first step and quit smoking. But even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. 
It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Over the last few weeks, there's been a lot of debate about how best to reopen the country and a lot of questions about when's the right time to reopen, how do we go about reopening, things like that. And I just thought the best person to talk to for this topic I thought would be an economist. So last week I reached out to Professor David Fuller at UW Oshkosh. He's an economics professor. And here's my conversation with him. UW Oshkosh released the results of its kind of first round of economic impact of COVID-19 surveys. And I guess kind of the the big takeaway is business owners are really kind of uncertain about how much longer their businesses can stay viable, kind of if conditions remain the same. And the, the Chamber of Commerce is kind of arguing that we need to reopen and let the businesses set their own guidelines for social distancing and I don't know. I guess kind of where do you stand on all the uncertainty in the economy right now because of the virus? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. And I think, you know, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough situation because I certainly understand from the business owner's perspective that this is, is about as bad as it could possibly be. And so, you know, the, the safer at home orders, are certainly going to hit a wide range of businesses really hard, and that's very difficult. I think I think one important aspect to keep in mind is that if we open the economy back up completely too soon, before the virus is is at least more under control, we risk really making things maybe not quite as bad, but still pretty bad for a much longer period of time. So I think. You know, I think some, something that sometimes is lost is that, you know, people, if they don't get the sense that the virus is under control and they feel safe going out to businesses, uh, they're still not going to go, most likely. So it, it may not cure things as much as people think unless there's something in place that gives us the confidence that the virus is, is under control. So, I mean, the, you know, the virus isn't going to go anywhere. It's going to be around for a while. But, you know, the hope is that it can be relatively under control and that should give consumers confidence to go to go out and, and do the things they normally would have done before January. What measures could be taken to kind of make consumers feel okay with kind of resuming economic activity? Testing would have to increase and um, contact tracing. Right. Yep. 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 No, I think that's the the most tried and true way to to give everyone confidence. Really, mm-hmm. um, is is a is kind of an organized, systematic testing and tracing protocol that not necessarily going to completely get rid of the virus, but at least keeps it under control and it, it gives you confidence as a consumer that if I'm, you know, out interacting with people in whatever setting. Uh, there's a much lower chance that they're infected or have come into contact with someone that was that was infected. So unless that's in place, 
I don't really see a good way to reopen the economy that's, that's going to solve any problems, really. This could last for a while. Until there's like a vaccine or a therapeutic treatment, are best practices for businesses going to have to change? And kind of if so, how are they going to have to change until we have a treatment or a vaccine? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. Um, and you're, you're exactly right. The, the virus isn't, it's not going to go anywhere. It'll, it'll still be around no matter what we do. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the systems that businesses have kind of put in place that they viewed as a short run fix, they're probably going to have to keep some of those around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, you know, my sense is if you take the example of restaurants, right? even if they got rid of the safer at home orders and let restaurants open, it's not clear that consumers would go to the restaurant to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, they're probably still going to want to do delivery and takeout options for a while. I think businesses will definitely have to prepare to kind of be fairly flexible with what consumers are looking for. And it's also important that, you know, whatever testing protocols are in place, they have to be pretty vigilant for their employees to make sure that sick employees aren't, aren't coming to work and getting everybody else sick. Because it'll, it, it'll spread pretty quickly at, at a workplace and then, uh, then we're back to square one. What would be the effect if we reopen and the virus gets worse and we have to shut down, shut down again? Kind of what effect does that have on society? You sort of get a double whammy on the economic impact. So the worst stuff that we've had recently we'll have again for another period of time. And then you have some additional spillover impacts from the health effects of having a, a much larger breakout in between, which is also very costly. Why Why are, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's a large group of people, but I mean, it is a big group of people that are clamoring reopen. And I guess why why are so many people thinking that that's the fix? When dealing with the virus is really the only fix that we're going to have. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I certainly understand. I can understand their perspective in the sense that, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, we've got a self-imposed sort of uh, issue with the economy Mm -hmm. um, to some extent. Um, And I think, you know, it's it's hard to, to know exactly what, different people are thinking, but you know, I think with, with things like this, it's easy if you're not affected personally mm-hmm. and you don't, and you don't see it, it's easy to think that it's not a potential risk, mm-hmm. right? Even though it, even though it might be. So if, you know, my community, my neighbors haven't been affected by this or, or gotten sick with the virus and I don't see it firsthand, it's easy for me to think, well, this is silly that we've closed down the economy for something that I, I can't see. It's not tangible mm-hmm. to me. And so I think it's it's easy to kind of flip into that mindset. You know, it's kind of like you know, we have this, this saying or this thing in, in economics or statistics that we call uh, survivor bias, which is, you know, you take the example of, you know, people that would say, okay, well, when I was a kid, I never wore my bike helmet and I was just fine. And the problem with that is that the kids that, didn't wear their bike helmets and were killed in a bike accident aren't around to tell about the fact that wearing a bike helmet is good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's kind of that same issue, right? That if you don't get infected by the virus, 
it's much easier to think this isn't a risk mm-hmm. from a health standpoint. So that's that's the best reason I can come up with why they're sort of clamoring to, to mm-hmm. go back to business as usual. If we kind of extend the stay-at-home order and keep some businesses shut down, what's the best thing that we can kind of do to help save businesses and prevent them from going under? The UW Oshkosh survey... Um, most businesses would like sales tax deferrals, an extra line of credit, no or low interest loans. Is it just kind of a mix of all those programs and making sure that they get to the small businesses that are struggling the most and better oversight over programs that help them? I think so. It's a it's a tough situation and there's no there's no perfect solution. I think, but yeah, I think uh, the federal government providing as they tried to do more and more uh, loans to small businesses. I think that, you know, continuing to support the unemployment insurance system is a good idea because that way it kind of helps businesses in the sense that it makes it easier if I have to lay off an employee knowing that they're relatively well taken care of by unemployment insurance. Mm -hmm. That can potentially help companies manage the interim period as well. That's really all there is, is that to try to give these companies access to funds that they'll need to, to stay afloat until hopefully the virus is under control and and things can start start moving back towards normal. I think that was kind of all that I all I had for you question wise. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? No, I think that I think that covers covers most of the main bases though. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, there's going to be some more news here on Week in Review from 90.3 WRST-FM Oshkosh. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhpp.org. Everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. While American trust in media is higher than it was last year, it's still at a decade low. Reporter Andrew Hansen takes a look at why that might be. According to a Gallup poll as recent as 2019, American trust in mainstream news media is at 41%. The University of Wisconsin Oshkosh political science professor George Wallace says one reason may be an over-reliance on social media. I think from the perspective of many who tend to rely primarily on social media, what they may be getting through their social media interactions is in many ways different from what they hear on mainstream news. What Professor Wallace is referring to is known as an echo chamber. It's a term used to describe an environment in which a person encounters only beliefs or opinions that coincide with their own, so that their existing views are reinforced and alternative ideas are not considered. People don't ordinarily like to be challenged, that the way they think may not be correct or that the way they think might be open to question. And so it involves a willingness on the part of people who do tend to form those echo chambers to think beyond the walls of those chambers. So what can be done? Getting your information from multiple sources is always important, but also realizing that it's not possible for any one source of news media to cover every story on Earth. We need to get beyond this notion that media only covers the things that are really important because there are lots of really important things that media doesn't tend to spend a lot of time covering. 
I'm Andrew Hansen, reporting for WRST News. Students and teachers across the Oshkosh Area School District are adapting to at-home learning, but opportunity gaps have caused some students to have a more difficult time adjusting than others. The district began implementing at-home learning on March 18th and will continue to do so for the remaining school year. Students in third grade or above took their Chromebook laptops home, and students in kindergarten through second grade were given paper assignments to work on. Kim Brown, the district's director of learning, says that for elementary school students, the focus isn't on learning new material. It's on ensuring students retain what they've already learned with a focus on literacy, math, and science. It's difficult for many families. And that's why we're trying to be really flexible and we're just trying to help maintain where the kids are because we know it's, it's a lot for families. To continue practicing math skills, students can use the Bridges Math Learning Center website along with the paper assignments they were sent home with. And for literacy, Brown says it's essential that students continue reading and writing at home. Amy Sippert, a first grade teacher at Merrill Elementary School, says that for some elementary school students, learning at home can be a struggle. Not every child has the same opportunity. It's not like you have all 20 children in your classroom every day. Sippert says some families are dealing with resource scarcity and do not have books for children to read or paper to write on beyond what was given out from the district. She says some families don't have a device to access the math website on either. Some people call it socioeconomic status. Some people call it poverty. I like to think about how it's an opportunity gap. Resources and experiences are just not there. When you're at home learning, it's the same thing, isn't it? Except possibly even a bigger gap. Amy Monagle, a technology integration coach for the school district, says the district is trying to close the opportunity gap by mailing students new coursework and providing Wi-Fi hotspots to families without internet access. The biggest push is to try to figure out how can we get more reading resources into kids' hands, and that's where I think, you know, the equity comes into play as well, mm-hmm. where there are so many online companies that are opening up their subscriptions free of charge to parents and teachers that have uh, online books. But if a family doesn't have a device, then there's no way for them to access it. Monogle says the district has had early discussions about providing families with devices to access reading materials online with, but currently there is no plan in place. For middle school and high school students, Julie Conrad, the district's director of curriculum and instruction, says the focus is on teaching students essential course content digitally for each course at every grade level. You can control your classroom environment. You can't control the at-home environment. And that's the the wild card in all of this. Brett Hartman, an English teacher at Oshkosh West High School, says much of his class was already using the student-teacher communication tool Canvas during the regular semester, so the transition to at-home learning was relatively smooth. Each week, Hartman posts a calendar with due dates and assignments on Canvas. He also makes daily videos with updates and reminders for students about what they should be working on. Even though it's become easier to do, it's still nowhere near as impactful as it is to be in class, in person with the kids. That's something that online learning will never be able to replace is the connections that you make with the people you're around all the time. Hartman says the share of students completing assignments hasn't changed too much from the start of the semester. Still, 
He says high school students are facing unique challenges as a result of the pandemic. I had a handful of students who work at grocery stores and they're getting more hours and being required to do even more. And that they can't quit their job because their family kind of relies on that income. So they have more of a focus on working and obviously staying healthy. To assist students during the pandemic, Hartman says the district has extended due dates to give students more time to complete assignments and is not penalizing them for turning in late work. Additionally, Curriculum Director Conrad says it has introduced an opt-in pass-fail grading system for middle and high school students. Students in May, after the final progress report, will have the option to finish out the course for a letter grade or finish out the course for a pass-fail. The school district's director of learning, Kim Brown, says the transition to at-home learning is bound to cause education gaps. To combat this, she says the district is planning to backfill next year's classes, meaning content from this year will be reviewed next year to bring students up to speed. For example, students generally move from algebra to geometry, but next year, students in geometry classes would review key concepts from algebra before learning any new material. The need for cybersecurity continues to grow in the 21st century due to our heavy reliance on technology. UW Oshkosh is taking steps to make sure that we are secure while using the internet. Jonathan Samp reports. UW Oshkosh, along with seven other UW schools, are now offering an online master's degree in cybersecurity for fall of 2020. The degree comes as the University of Wisconsin Board of Regents approved of the 12-course, 34-credit program to help students get a step ahead in the field. Getting a master's in cybersecurity will not only be beneficial to students, but also employers as well, as there is a need for people with a master's degree in cybersecurity. George Thomas, the chair of the Computer Science Department at UW Oshkosh, says the need for people with a master's degree in cybersecurity is growing and employers are seeking them. So globally, the cybersecurity workforce gap is growing rapidly. It's projected that there will be a shortfall of 1.8 million professionals globally by 2022. Just in Wisconsin alone, they're projecting a 9% increase in cybersecurity-related jobs over the next decade. Uh, So there's a huge market for cybersecurity professionals. And most cybersecurity jobs out there require a certain amount of experience. So a student who is doing a bachelor's in cybersecurity does not have the perspective that a student who has a master's in cybersecurity would have. Thomas also says why cybersecurity is needed and why the field is seeing such a large growth. Uh, It's clear, hopefully, why this is growing, because uh, cybersecurity attacks are increasing. Every field that we know needs extensive computer support. And so when there is extensive computer infrastructure, there is going to be uh, a large number of attacks. The need for cybersecurity is increasing, and UW Oshkosh is helping to meet that growing demand with the introduction of a cybersecurity master's degree. For WRST News, I'm Jonathan Samp. Fifty years ago, a growing anti-war movement erupted on what is now the UW Oshkosh campus when thousands of students rioted, blockading Algoma Boulevard, 
lighting tires and trash cans on fire, and digging up a 30-foot section of road with pickaxes and shovels. The incident became known as the Algoma Boulevard Riots, a cultural collision between President Richard Nixon's moral majority and the counterculture in Oshkosh. UW Oshkosh history professor Stephen Kircher researched the incident. Earlier this week, we sat down with Professor Kircher to discuss the Algoma Boulevard Riots. The place to kind of start with this story, I guess, would be the anti-war movement started bubbling up at UW Oshkosh in the late 60s, early 70s. I was wondering if you could give a little bit of background information about the anti-war movement. Where to start? Um, It's a very big topic, and it was a very big movement, and it spread all over the United States. A lot of attention has been placed by historians on larger, more prestigious campuses that attracted a lot of anti-war activity beginning in, really, in 1965, places like the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, University of California at Berkeley, certainly University of Wisconsin at Madison, where there were several pretty significant anti-war demonstrations, the most important one being in um, 1967, the Dow demonstrations. But the movement really spread, and it was not just at elite universities and colleges. It now, by the late 1960s, was trickling throughout working class state institutions, many colleges and universities throughout the United States. And there was new momentum added to the anti-war movement after President Nixon went on television and announced that the United States had engaged in some military actions in Cambodia, and that triggered a spurt of outrage amongst young people, many of whom are still of draft age and, you know, were really against the war. And in early May, we saw a rash of demonstrations on thousands of colleges throughout the United States, and UW-Octosh was one of those. So it's a long history of several years of building up and mounting frustration, and, you know, the stakes were considered very high for a lot of draft age young men and for people who were increasingly opposed to the Vietnam War on moral grounds. Leading up to the Algoma Boulevard riot, there had been several protests on the UW Oshkosh campus, Uh kind of between Black Thursday and the Algoma Boulevard riot. On October 15th, 1969, there was a teach-in that the UWO president really wasn't behind, but there were demonstrations in Fletcher Hall and out on the lawn in front of Dempsey Hall. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the October 15th teach-in event. They weren't just happening in Oshkosh, they were happening throughout the country. So they were part of a concerted effort uh, on the part of local activists. And, you know, every campus in those days had certain group of, of student activists who were more inspired to instigate public demonstrations than others and certainly Oshkosh had a core group of SDS members and uh, other peace activists, anti-war activists who saw the idea of holding public meetings and teaching an official sanctioned teaching where the university would actually be shut down and when the when the administration didn't agree to the idea of a teaching then I think they thought holding meetings in dorms and outside the lawn of Dempsey Hall. These were substitutes for the type of consciousness raising that the organizers hoped would happen in a larger event. What was the reaction by the 
Oshkosh community at the time. It looked like there were, like the community, according to the website, wasn't really on board. They were kind of part of Nixon's moral majority a little bit. Oshkosh, like so many cities throughout the United States, was was really divided in the late 1960s on these critical issues that really had Americans fighting against each other. We live in, and we have lived in, very partisan times in the last several years, but it's always a good reminder for us to realize that there have been moments like this in the past when American society was deeply, deeply divided, and the late 60s was one of those times. And the issue of the Vietnam War, and there were other issues like race and civil rights and later feminism and the counterculture and many other things, but the issue of the war tore families apart. And there was a very big movement, political movement, that ended up with with Richard Nixon in the White House that was predicated on the belief that what America needed was law and order. What America needed was to put an end to the demonstrations and the chaos that was being stirred up by spoiled, rabble-rousing, drug-addicted, sandal-wearing hipsters, you know, on college campuses. And this kind of great cultural divide between many traditional Americans, those who, you know, still supported the war, still attended church, still wanted to uphold traditions and norms that they considered to be really important. They felt they were fighting a rearguard action against a sea of dissenters and rabble-rousers and lawbreakers, and it made for a very volatile mix. And Oshkosh just became one of many places around the country that you saw these tensions between conservatives or what we might better call traditionalists and radicals. And it was, um, you know, it was bound to cause friction. And really, I think what happened on Algoma Street was really a, a clash between these these two different sides. Getting to the uh, Algoma Boulevard riots, on May 1st, Oshkosh kind of declares May 1st, 1970, Law Day USA, and they're promoting the rule of law. Um, and WSUO students at the time, they, they, they were handing out leaflets kind of about the traffic problem on Algoma Boulevard, and um, they closed the boulevard, and they were using like logs and things to kind of close the boulevard and make, make a protest. It kind of frustrated a lot of the conservatives in town and kind of stroked some of the fires in the divide that you were just talking about. Kind of what was the traffic problem on Algoma Boulevard and why, kind of what led up to that? Well, have you ever crossed Algoma Boulevard? Oh, yeah. It's a mess still. <laughs> you, you know that it can be a little hairy, but... You know, there were incidents and close calls. It had been widely known for a long time that Algoma Boulevard could be a dangerous place and that if the university were better planned, if it were better laid out, you would never have a main artery of traffic going right through the heart of campus like that. Mm -hmm. But it was never the intention of the people who built and constructed Algoma Boulevard at the beginning of the 20th century or maybe even longer, longer ago than that, that a university would be sitting right where Algoma Boulevard goes. The university exploded in size 
from the early 60s to late 1960s. It's a little hard for us to appreciate just how dramatic the growth of the size of the university was. It went from a small university of several thousand students uh, almost overnight to maybe 10 or 11,000 students. It just exploded, and part of that was because of baby boomer generation, and part of it was because of the Vietnam War and, and young men uh, evading the draft by going to college. And, and so suddenly we have the city of Oshkosh contending with a large out-of-state and uh, certainly, you know, um, out-of-city student population, and that bred frustration. There were a lot of people who lived in Oshkosh who never really liked the idea of having a large university sort of take over the town, and there were tensions between what we call town and gown that had gone back for several years. So Algoma Boulevard really was, um, in a way, a, a, a small representation of some of the frustration that um, that existed. There were reports often from students that, especially if you were a male and you wore long hair, that if you crossed Algoma Boulevard, rather than slowing down, uh, a pickup truck that might be passing by would actually put on the gas. It was that kind of resentment that many of the students were feeling from Oshkosh residents as they traveled through town. And eventually, I think students recognized that it was a safety issue, but really what happened is that I, I'm quite sure from the interviews that I did from 10 years ago when I did the website, it, it became clear that what started as a public safety issue really sort of morphed into a, a way for students to really vent their rage at the continuing conflict between law and order authority, the Nixon administration, and young people like themselves. That comes to a boiling point on May 4th, 1970 when 250 students attend the Oshkosh Common Council meeting. Council says they'll look into it, but they don't give a concrete, we'll do something about the issue answer to the students. And the students leave feeling really angry. At 11 p.m., they kind of barricade Algoma Boulevard, um, and they set fire to garbage cans, and they cause this big demonstration, and the police have to come and break it up. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about the the incident where it all kind of came to a boiling point. Well, I, it's, it's a little hard for us to imagine something like that could happen. That students at our university, not a place known for student activism or demonstrations of, of any kind, really, would be so moved to demonstrate in the way that they did. And not just demonstrate. It was not peaceful demonstrations. It was out in the streets, vandalism, a, a venting of rage and uh, confrontation with police. So, you know, it seems very foreign to us when you ask the question, how do you explain it? It's a little hard to explain, really. Certainly, emotions were running high, and I think only if you can appreciate the heightened sense of anger and disappointment and fear and dread and animosity that you felt towards authority after... Um, after having been lied to and feeling that your personal safety was being endangered by a generation of older adults who didn't respect you, it's a little easier to understand the course of action that students took. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly the heightened emotions of that time period. I, I, I don't think, you know, if you just close your eyes and you think to yourself, um, could you ever imagine um, a situation today where on a college campus in the United States somewhere, 
National Guard troops could be called out to put down a demonstration and in the course of that movement actually kill point blank four college students on a college campus. I think that you as a college student would be would be pretty upset by that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to think that that could happen. And I think that was exactly what was at stake for a lot of students. The very idea that police could come on campus, that National Guard troops armed and ready to shoot and not just injure but to kill was a just a shocking, shocking situation, one that just really enraged many students. So if you were an Oshkosh policeman in, in May 1970 and you were in uniform and had a badge, you could very well be seen as a surrogate for the misplaced and misguided and overzealous authority that students were really angry at. So their anger was really fueled by the, the Kent State shooting. And the street safety issue coupled with the Kent State incident that really pushed things kind of to their boiling point. Yeah. So I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about the silent march. So the students were going to hold a May 7th protest, and then um, there was a memorial for the Kent State students that had died. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess the silent march kind of, it seems like everybody kind of came together and kind of recognized that... um, I guess the volatility that was going on at the time was toxic is kind of what I gathered from the the silent march thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Would you want to talk a little bit about that incident? Well, I think based on the interview that I did with some of the principal people involved, I think there was a recognition on the part of several of the main student leaders that any more destructive action on their part was just a dead end. Mm -hmm. And and, and this was a recognition for many peaceful, you know, anti-war activists throughout the United States. This question of how far you take a demonstration, how far you let your emotions get the best of you, how far you're willing to, to go by making a statement, by committing an act of vandalism, this very important question of uh, of what is the political utility or what political use or good ever comes from an act of destruction from the, the standpoint of some 60s radicals in the late 60s and early 70s it was to heighten the contradictions was a was a phrase that was often used and that the idea here was that in order to make the other side really show itself for what it is in the minds of many radicals, the other side, meaning police and authority, were, you know, sort of semi-fascistic military forces that were willing to use any means at their disposal to suppress dissent and free speech. And the way you get the other side to really show how evil they are, how bad they are, is to force them into, into acting that way. Um, but you know there were there were other people who understood that these kind of suicidal tactics did nothing to win adherence uh, to your side. So another one of those really big political questions on the part of student activists and anti-war activists was how do you how do you best appeal 
to peaceful, law-abiding Americans who may wear their hair short and may still attend church on Sunday, but who may not agree with the war in Vietnam. How can you win them over to your side and not alienate them? And these, these are huge questions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they weren't, they weren't easily solved, and there was a great deal of debate, endless debate, on how to approach these things. But certainly amongst a core group of, of student leaders on the Oshkosh campus, I think they, they just came to the realization that a peaceful demonstration was was the best way to go, whether it was because, you know, doing anything more destructive was just um, going nowhere, that they were alienating possible supporters, I, I really don't know. But I think I think they made the right decision to take a more peaceful course. And, um, and that they did in this silent march. Kind of after the silent march, what happens with UW Oshkosh's kind of anti-war movement? Well, the war wouldn't wind down for quite a while yet. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be five years, and there would be an escalation of the war under President Nixon, more bombardment, more death, a dramatic escalation of bombing in Cambodia and elsewhere. So that was, I, I really can't say with certainty what happened to the, the war movement in Oshkosh. But I would say that there's one important event that occurred not too far away from Oshkosh in August of 1970. And it was called the, the Sterling Hall bombing. That was a, a bombing that was committed by four anti-war protesters, radicals, on the campus of UW-Madison. And their protest against the universities, what they called the universities' complicity in Vietnam War, was to bomb a, a big research building on campus. And when they bombed that building uh, in August of 1970, in their early morning hours, they didn't expect that anybody would be killed, but there was a young scientist who was in his lab and was killed. And that violence, the death of that young man on the UW-Madison campus sent a chill throughout the anti-war movement that had a big impact. And certainly, I would imagine that that was more the case in Wisconsin than in other states throughout the country. You know, Madison's not that far away. There are a lot of people who were had connections to Madison. And I, I'm quite certain that that bombing in August 1970 and the fallout from that bombing, the negative reaction to that type of activity reverberated throughout the Oshkosh campus. We're going to take a quick break here on Week in Review from 90.3 WRST-FM Oshkosh. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her Mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. There are billions of stars in the universe that astronomers view and study. Stars come in a multitude of forms, colors, and sizes, making them very interesting topics to study. Nick Fiervanti reports. 
one of the most popular stars in the night sky is known as Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is a part of the constellation we call Orion, and is the brighter red star in the upper left of the constellation. Betelgeuse is classified as a red supergiant and is many times larger than our sun. Recently, the red supergiant has baffled astronomers, observing that the star has been getting fainter and fainter. Professor Barton Pritzel of the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh says that it is normal for Betelgeuse to change in its brightness, but that it is very peculiar for the star to be getting significantly fainter over time. The dimming part of it was something that was very confusing to astronomers because it was something very unexpected for Betelgeuse. Professor Pritzel says that Betelgeuse is nearing the end of its life and that the star will eventually die. Betelgeuse, we know, sometime soon in astronomical terms, is going to explode. And when it does, it'll be bright enough to actually be seen in the daylight sky. Betelgeuse is being regularly monitored by astronomers everywhere. Professor Pritzel says that the main way astronomers look at the star is just visual, but also do so in more advanced ways such as beyond visible light. We also look in wavelengths beyond the visible light, like what you and I normally see with our eyes. We look in longer wavelengths in the infrared too, which lets us know a little bit more about what's going on with a star like this. Betelgeuse can be monitored by anyone who is interested in astronomy, whether you are a professional or a beginner. For WRST News, I'm Nick Fiervanti. This show is a production of 90.3 WRST-FM Oshkosh. Music for this episode was provided by FesslianStudios.com. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week for another edition of Week in Review.